During our time together, we are going to turn our eyes to the book of Ecclesiastes, to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. Um, Again, if you're um, joining us, not familiar with um, our church, uh, often what we will do is we will simply take a book of the Bible and we will just slowly make our way through that book, looking at it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, and seeing, finding, digging for the treasures that the Lord has for us in that particular book. And uh, we have been, for the last several months, working our, we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, the last uh, couple of chapters are just so extremely relevant. The entirety of the book is so extremely relevant for where we find ourselves in human history. And what God has for us here is um, so timely and important that we just thought we would continue to walk through this book together. And uh, so we are looking at Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. Um, Hear God's word read this morning. And let's listen with reverence and joy. He says, the preacher says, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your omni-relevant word. And uh, Lord, we do ask that you would open our eyes this morning to, to see what you have for us here, that you would open our ears to hear what you have for us here, and that you would soften our hearts to receive what you have for us here, namely Christ with all of his benefits. And so, to that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of the hearts of all who are watching be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, some of you might be familiar with um, the 18th, 19th century um, missionary, Christian missionary family, the Judsons, the Judsons, Adoniram Judson um, being the, the father and husband of the crew. Uh, theirs is probably one of my, my favorite missionary stories. Uh, theirs is a story filled with, with tragedy and romance, with sorrow and celebration, with action and risk. And one of my favorite parts of their story, actually, is, uh, it has to do with how um, the husband, Adoniram Judson, came to be married to his first wife, Anne, Anne Judson. Uh, 
And at this point in the story, Adoniram had um, sensed a call to go uh, what was to him a strange and dangerous place at the time. He had actually uh, originally thought that he would be going to India, but he ended up going to a place called Burma. It's now called Myanmar, a place where there were uh, no professing Christians, a place that in all likelihood would be hostile to Christianity. It was a place that was far away from home and family and familiar comforts. And Adoniram wanted to go here to serve this people and to tell them about the love and salvation of the Lord Jesus. And he wanted to marry Anne and have her come with him. And so he wrote a letter to her, to her father, uh, to ask for his permission to marry Anne. And and here's what the letter said. This is just a portion of, of what he wrote in the letter. He said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls. For the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. These were the words he wrote. This is the request that Adoniram put to Anne's father. And Anne's father not close to the idea, not opposed to the idea, but at the same time, not especially eager to send his daughter off to possible death, went to Anne and he basically said, it's up to you. And Anne accepted Adoniram's proposal. And if you're familiar with the story, you know how it turned out. Um, Adoniram and Anne, they made this dangerous journey originally to India. Then they found that there was a greater need in Burma. And so they changed plans. They went to Burma. They, they set up shop. And for the first several years, just gave themselves to what seemed a fruitless endeavor. And those years were, were frustrating. They were filled with grief and with suffering. Anne had three pregnancies The first ended in a miscarriage. The second, Roger, was born and then died just eight months later. Their third child, Maria, was born, but shortly after, Anne herself died. And then Maria died just six months later. Let me ask you this. Do you think Anne was foolish? Do you think that she was a fool? Do you think that she wasted her life? 
do you think that the risks she took, the decisions she made to put others before her own self-preservation, those risks she took and decisions she made that led to horrific suffering in her life and an early death, do you think that those show her to be a fool? Well, we come to a peculiar and timely passage of Scripture together in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a passage that reminds us of the reality that we live in an unpredictable world. Uh, it's a passage uh, that, that reminds us that we just simply do not know what the future holds. And of course, it's a lesson that we're all learning Right now, it's a lesson that is, is so relevant to us right now. We don't know. We obviously don't know what the future holds. Our entire lives, our entire society, our entire world has been turned upside down in the matter of just a couple of weeks, and it's all happened so fast. Life is sometimes, in the worst possible way, just unpredictable. And yet the preacher of Ecclesiastes says that we should not let the, the unpredictability of life paralyze us into inaction. We should not let the unpredictability of life frighten us into the trap of thinking that self-preservation ought to be our highest pursuit. Instead, he exhorts us to take appropriate risks for the glory of God and to do good to our neighbors. And that's the kind of big idea here Although life is unpredictable, we ought to take appropriate risks for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. And we're going to unpack that big idea by simply walking briefly through our conundrum, our calling, and our confidence. Our conundrum, our calling, and our confidence. And first here we see our conundrum. Again, the preacher tells us to, to, to cast our bread upon the waters and to send a portion to seven or eight and we'll explain a little more about what that means in just a little bit. But suffice it to say now, it's an exhortation for us to be generous toward our neighbors in need. He's, he's exhorting us to take risks, particularly financial risks and, and monetary risks in order to serve and help our neighbors in need. And of course, many of us might hear an exhortation such as this in this particular time and go, uh, surely... This is not an appropriate time to be doing so. We shouldn't take risks and pursue sacrificial generosity toward our neighbors in this particular time and season. There's too much uncertainty. There's too many unknowns. There's too much at stake. We're on the brink of disaster here. But look at what he says in verse 2. He says, you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. You actually never know what's around the corner. You never really know what the future holds. And in fact, this, this theme of not knowing is very prevalent in this particular passage. And just these short six verses, he tells us three times about what we don't know. He says that we don't know what disaster may happen on the earth in verse two. He says in, in verse five, he says that we don't know what God is going to do in the future. And then in verse six, he, he tells us that we don't know whether or not our actions will prove to be fruitful. And yet in verse three, he tells us something that we do know. He tells us, that whatever is going to happen is exactly what will happen. <laughs> that whatever God wills to happen is precisely what will happen. When, when the clouds are filled with rain, he says, it rains. When a tree falls, there it falls, and you can't change it. 
We can't will the rain to fall or not to fall. We can't will the tree to fall one way or another. Whatever happens is what happens, and we have little control. This is our conundrum. We don't know what the future holds. We can't change what the future holds. It will rain when it's supposed to rain. Trees will fall when they're supposed to fall, and we have little control over it all. And again, this is a lesson we're taking to heart right now, isn't it? Our lives have changed so much over the span of just a few days. We didn't see this coming. We made our New Year's resolutions in January. We didn't see this coming. We didn't know that our world would get turned upside down. And yet here we are. And and if you're paying attention to social media at all right now or the news and all that, you've likely seen a number of predictions coming out about uh, how this pandemic will play out, what the future holds, how it will play out for our healthcare system, how it will play out for our economy, how it will play out for us culturally, what kind of new norms will be established because of this. And, And some predictions are rather apocalyptic and others are pretty optimistic. And no doubt, Whatever happens, a lot of changes are coming. We have to prepare ourselves as much as we're able to do so. But at the same time, friends, the reality is that we just don't know how this thing is going to play out. We can make predictions all we want. But as a, uh, uh, someone said, this quote I recently came across, he said, prediction is hard, especially about the future. Just simply don't know what is around the corner. That's our conundrum. However, here's some good news. What is unknown to us is not unknown to God. Notice in in verse 5 how the preacher refers to what is going to happen in the future as the work of God. As we've seen continually in the book of Ecclesiastes, the times and seasons and happenings of our lives are in his sovereign hand. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one who is guiding and governing this world to its intended end, namely the renewal of all things. And here's why that ought to comfort you, Christian. The sovereign God who is controlling and upholding, who is guiding and governing, is the same one who calls you his own beloved child. This high and almighty king is the same God who invites you to call him father. This is the same God who has promised to work all things together for your highest good. This is the same God who has promised that whatever happens in this world, he is ultimately guiding it to a day wherein he will renew all things on this earth and dwell here with us. And and don't you see, because of that, we can face these kinds of times with such resilience, such peace, such hope, because no matter what happens, no matter what hardships we face, no matter what kinds of adversity lay around the corner, our God is in control. He is here for us, he is here with us, and he is making all things new. And because of this, we as, as God's people, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be paralyzed into inaction. We don't need to be frightened into making self-preservation our highest pursuit. Instead, we have a distinct calling to live out in moments such as these. And so look with me next at our calling. The preacher calls us to not be paralyzed into inaction. It says in verse 4, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. 
So he's saying you can't allow yourself to be so preoccupied with trying to read the skies, with trying to predict the future, to try to navigate every possible outcome that you fail to take action now to glorify God by doing good to your neighbor. Instead, he tells us in verse 1 and 2, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, scholars differ on how to interpret this this kind of obscure phrase here regarding casting your bread upon the waters. Uh, Some believe that it's referring to a kind of maritime commerce. However, um, it seems more accurate to understand it in the way that many early Jewish and Christian interpreters have understood it, and that is as as an exhortation to be generous with your finances and your resources toward those in need, to show mercy to those in need, to be benevolent and generous to those in need. He tells us to, to cast our bread upon the surface of the waters. To some, this might seem kind of like a waste, especially to people in the ancient world when this was written. Bread was a a precious thing, and it seems wasteful to put bread in water. It's going to become all soggy and gross, and then who knows if it's going to come back to you. You'll likely never see it again. It seems wasteful. Similarly, giving your resources, your finances, your goods for the sake of others seems like a waste to the people of this world. The, The story I read about Ann Judson earlier, that seems Like a waste. The people of this world would consider that to be a waste. They would say that she wasted her life because she gave up her her home and her familiar comforts and her possessions and her family. She gave up the American dream and ultimately she gave up her life for the sake of loving and serving a people who cared nothing for her at the time. And yet the preacher tells us with confidence that if you cast your bread upon the waters, you will find it after many days. He tells us to consider generous giving to those in need as an investment that will bring a return to us. And it's unclear whether or not he views this this return as being one that is temporal or one that is eternal, but it's true in both senses. It's true in a temporal sense in that when we give generously to those in need, we're contributing to forming a kind of community that we will also be helped in when in times of need. And it's consistent with Jesus' teaching in Luke 16, 1 through 9. But it's also true in, a, in, a, in an eternal sense. We have the promises of Jesus in Matthew 6 that when we sacrificially give to others in need, when we give alms or storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, we have an eternal return on our investment when we give generously to those in need. We have a reward awaiting us, one that is imperishable and indestructible. And then he goes on to even encourage a kind of extravagant generosity in verse 2. He says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. It tells us to send bread to seven or even eight households. For those of you who were with us when we preached through the book of Nehemiah, maybe you remember in Nehemiah 8, they had this, this celebratory feast. And uh, there were many in their midst who had just been uh, freed and relieved from slavery and servitude in their midst. And um, they had nothing for themselves. And so 
During the feast, Nehemiah encouraged them in Nehemiah 8.10 to eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and to send portions to anyone, to send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Similarly here, the, the preacher is encouraging us to share food and drink and resources, perhaps even toilet paper and hand sanitizer with those who are in need. Again, this is something that will likely seem foolish to our non-believing neighbors, to some of our non-believing neighbors. Many now see this as a time for hoarding. Many see this as a time for pursuing self-preservation, not generosity and sacrifice. Many will, will think maybe there is a time for generosity and sacrificial giving for the sake of others, but, but they kind of just want to see how this thing plays out. But again, the preacher's telling us here, we, we, we don't know what the temporal future holds. We, we never know what will happen for us in terms of finances or health, and yet all the same, can't let that paralyze us into inaction. If we're constantly waiting for the right time to show generosity and mercy to our neighbors, we'll wait around forever because the, the opportune time will never come. Now is the time to take appropriate risks, to glorify God and do good to our neighbors. As John Wesley once so forcefully put it, he said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. And this is something that has always set Christians apart. I came across several times this last week, um, an example from uh, Rodney Stark, he's a historian. Um, several people have mentioned him in the last week um, as, as I've been reading and, and listening to just uh, what a lot of Christian leaders are saying in, uh, around the world. And um, they've mentioned Rodney Stark's description of early Christians and their response to the plagues in the second and third centuries in the Roman Empire. He says that, that some medical historians believe that the, the plague in 165 AD may have been the first appearance of smallpox in the West, and it was a, a devastating epidemic. Um, it, it killed many over the span of 15 years. Perhaps even around a quarter of the population died from it. Even the emperor himself, Marcus Aurelius, died from it. And the response of the Roman citizens was, was largely the response that you would expect in times like these in, in a lot of ways. Um, self-preservation became the highest order. Uh, the pagan priests, they refused to interact with the people. Uh, uh, doctors, unbelieving doctors, fled the cities to go to the country uh, to find refuge from the horrors of the disease. Many households, at the first sign of family members, uh, spouses, parents, children, having caught the disease, they would kick them out of the house to leave them to die alone in the streets. However, according to Stark, Christians didn't respond that way. Christians, on the other hand, they, they met the obligation to, to care for the sick rather than desert them, this specific call that we have from Jesus himself. And thereby, they saved an enormous number of lives by, by simply providing elementary nursing, uh, continuing to feed and give water to the sick. They estimate that Christians might have reduced the mortality as much as two-thirds some historians even attribute this kind of care and love as, as one of the reasons that Christianity went on to become this predominant religion in 
the West because they loved their neighbor. They were generous toward their neighbors and with their time, their money and talent in time of great need. They, they didn't let self-preservation become the highest order for them, but instead, because of the hope of a glorious future that they had in Christ, they spent themselves and they took appropriate risks for the sake of others. Now, Veritasers, listen, I know that we are facing many unknowns right now. I know we're facing many, we may not know what is going to happen to us financially. We, we may not know what will happen with our jobs. We may not know how we're going to pay our mortgage or our rent in the months to come. We may not know how we're going to buy groceries or pay for utilities in the coming months. But we know that whatever the future holds, it is in the hand of our God and Father. And so I'm going to encourage you right now to be generous, to take appropriate risks, to glorify our God and do good to our neighbors. And don't misunderstand, I'm not telling you to be reckless. Wash your hands, practice social distancing, obey the governor's orders to stay at home during the, the time that he's telling us to stay home unless you need to go out for essentials and all the rest of it. Follow these kinds of basic uh, wise practices. Largely, what we're trying to do now with all of these efforts is kind of to, to try to prevent this, the, the, the sort of severity that could happen if we don't obey the, the orders of our governing authorities. But even one of the things the governor said just the other day that he mentioned as an essential is helping our neighbors that are in need, making a run to the grocery store or the pharmacy for a neighbor who is in need, dropping off toilet paper, or some cash to a neighbor in need. There might be someone in your city group who doesn't know where they are going to buy or how they are going to get groceries this week. Cast your bread upon the waters. There may be someone in need, a neighbor in your neighborhood who might be in need of toilet paper. Send a portion to seven or eight. Take risks, be it financial or otherwise, to serve your neighbors in time of need. To you Veritasers who are medical professionals, may I encourage you, thank you so much for what you do, first of all, and may I encourage you to continue to go to work with all the unknowns and uncertainties, with courage and hope, with sacrificial love and care, working for your neighbors as unto the Lord. We applaud you. We're here for you. We're praying for you. For others right now, we're working on getting some things together. Uh, uh, Deacon Mike Squire, he's, he's heading this up where he's trying to get uh, something together where we're going to send some care baskets to those in need um, uh, at a particular facility and also just to any of our neighbors who might be in need. Be on the lookout for that. Also, our church is working on expanding our emergency assistant fund in our budget. Just We're, we're anticipating that in the coming months, we're going to have to help a lot more than we had originally planned when we made the budget last September. We're going to have to help a lot more uh, folks to, to pay for rent and for groceries and utilities and these sorts of things. And so if you're able to, please continue to give to the church, knowing that we're also going to take a hit because some people just simply can't give right now. Please be generous and do good to your neighbors in these times of uncertainty and in this unpredictable world. And, and may we do all this and more as Christians, recognizing 
that although we face the conundrum of not knowing what the future holds, our calling is to take appropriate risks to glorify God by doing good to our neighbors. And because of the truth of the gospel, we can do so with confidence. Look with me last at our confidence. Again, my friends, the preacher is emphasizing to us here the the fact that we don't know what the future holds. Three times he says, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. But as one pastor and commentator reminded me of this last week, there are some things that we do indeed know. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 9 that we do know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Please don't misunderstand. He's not talking about temporal riches. I know I'm on a screen right now, but don't confuse me for a televangelist. I'm not talking about temporal riches. He's talking about our eternal riches. He's talking about our eternal reward. He's talking about the hope that we have in that which we confess every week, the hope of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. He's talking about the riches and the glory of our salvation in Christ. He's talking about the salvation that Christ purchased for us through his humiliation and suffering and death. He's talking about the gift of union and communion with our God and Father forevermore. He's talking about the eternal life of flourishing in the new heavens and new earth that we have a waiting force where we will spend with God and his people in the age to come forevermore. And to give us that imperishable gift, to give us those eternal riches, Christ took on poverty and humiliation and death, and one day he will return to give us all that he purchased for us. And on that day, this earth will be completely renewed. No more pandemics, no more illnesses, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. And we will live with our God and our Christ in a perfect world without end. That is the confidence that we possess in the midst of these un, in the midst of this unpredictable world in these unpredictable times. While we may not know what our temporal future holds, we do indeed know what our eternal future holds, and therefore we're not basing our lives on what may or may not happen in our temporal future. We're basing our lives on what Christ has said about our eternal future in him. And that's what motivates us and drives us to spend and expend ourselves for our neighbors. That's what empowers us to take appropriate risks to do good to our neighbors. That is what equips us to show sacrificial generosity to those in need because we know that our God will take care of us. That he is working all things together for our good and that he is guiding this world to its intended end, namely the renewal of all things and our full salvation and glory. So back to our question at the beginning. Did Ann Judson waste her life? Was she a fool to give so much up for the people of Burma? In light of the confidence we possess in Christ, Absolutely not. As Jim Elliott once said, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And therefore, she was no fool. She may have given up her comforts, her wealth, her temporal home, her family, her life. But she did so, as Adnarayim said in his letter, for the sake of him 
who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. And therefore, she gave up what she would indeed lose anyway one day for that which she will never lose. Because of the way that the Lord used her sacrifice and Adoniram's sacrifice, there is in Myanmar the, the Myanmar Baptist Association, the association of churches that the, the Judson started there, made up of over 5,000 churches with almost 1 million members. And soon Anne will be in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from her brothers and sisters saved from eternal woe and despair through her means. She didn't waste her life. And if we follow in her footsteps to love and serve and expend ourselves for our neighbors, neither will we. Although this life is unpredictable, we ought to take appropriate risks for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. Cast our bread upon the waters. Send a portion to seven or eight. Sow our seed in the morning and in the evening withhold not our hand. As Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you seal this word upon our hearts? And it's hard for me right now to not mourn and lament the fact that our church is not together. Because now is the time during our gathering that we would celebrate and observe the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we, we long for the day when we can be together again. But even in, in the midst of these turbulent times and uncertain times, would you be at work in us to form us and conform us more and more to the image of your Son? And would you work through us to be a light to a world that is drowning in darkness. Would you empower us by your spirit, through your word, for that task in these times? We pray in Jesus' name.